0: Welcome to the Victoria Anarchist Book Fair's week of podcasts featuring local, national, and international activists and authors. Due to the ongoing global pandemic, the Book Fair Collective decided to move their event online again this year. So, for the second year in a row, From Embers is teaming up with the Victoria Anarchist Book Fair to release presentations over our podcast platform. Recordings of these voices of resistance were conducted on unceded indigenous territories across so-called British Columbia and beyond. For more information about the book fair and a full schedule of online events, check out victoriaanarchistbookfair.ca. And listeners in the Victoria area are encouraged to visit Canvas Books at 2620 Quadra Street or online at chemist.ca for anarchist publications and more. And to find out more about our regular anarchist podcast, go to fromembers.libsyn.com or simply search From Embers in your favorite podcast app.
1: Welcome to the Victoria but the Podcast the 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 16th event uh, over the last, Decade in a bit. Um, we are coming to you with a series of podcasts. And today, just in Anaheim, we are coming to you from uh, West Janet and the Territory, uh, unceded, of course. And I would also like to recognize the nations of Iquamo and uh, Don uh, as we. A thankful for the ability to live and um, to live, work, and uh, play on their territory. And the is a process that we greatly care about as anarchists and as people working in solidarity. Uh, and Anthony is uh, coming from a, from uh, Akinabe uh, and the Nazi ter- uh, territory, and so um, I'll just inform you guys a little bit about Anne. Anne then was a member of an urban rural collective in the 1980s. This group was heavily influenced by the local indigenous people in B.C., but also by the American Indian movement um, that was still active at that time. So the rest action was also influenced by the feminist and anarchist and front movement that were very active during the 1980s. So the political illness, our anarchist and values were very much reflected through the classical and strategic action as well as the company. and was elected along with the other active members of direct action in January 1983. And after a year and a half long trial, was sentenced to life and subsequently spent roughly seven years in the only prison for women in Canada at the time, the prison for women, P4W before being transferred to the only minimum security prison, then the half-hour, and finally the community. She worked with the partner for many years after her release in her own cabinet shop called Concept Cabinet. Eventually, bought more a small farm in, uh, on the territory and worked with her fellow ex-prisoners in women for justice. And then in 2015, started the Prison for Women Memorial Collective. This latter group was dedicated to having a permanent memorial garden and gallery for all the women who died in federal prison. The gallery is going to be located inside they're now closed uh, prison for women with the goal of exhibiting activating, activating the art, writing, and film about the women in prison. So they will be remembered as the fully fleshed out women that they were, as opposed to these female-like cartoon characters that are normally dictated. I did presently declare in the Clinton to can through it so um, b- before I start with the question I would also like to mention that and the author a clue direct acting members of an urban ruler and taking the lab Women doing crime for crime. So, welcome, Anne. Uh, we're very happy to have you here today. And uh, my first question for you is uh, you recently held a video for women who uh, died while in prison in the prison for women. One was the memorial. What was it about, and how many people participated?
2: Well, it wasn't, it was actually, um, the vigil was really Prisoner's Justice Day this year. We, every year, we have, uh, we celebrate the Prisoner's Justice Day at the old Prison for Women. And uh, that is where we meet, and that is where we've been fighting for a memorial garden and a gallery for um really since about 2016. And the point of it uh, is we have a healing circle that is organized by the Indigenous community here. And uh, so the healing circle is what it describes. It's, just, it's an Indigenous ceremony and it is a healing uh, ceremony. And then we have um, uh, just a gathering after where people can speak and we eat and stuff. But, the, you know, I, across Canada and I think in, even uh, in, in the States, I think some places also uh, recognize Prisoner's Justice Day as well. And it started back in 1974 when uh, Eddie Nalen, um, he was, uh, I th- I, he slashed in segregation. He was in, he'd been an activist. And had been in segregation for a long time in Millhaven, and the other guys on the unit knew that he was bleeding out, and they pushed the emergency buttons. And the guards had dismembered them so they didn't work, so no one arrived, and he bled to death. And then the next year, um, uh, Landers died uh, of of a basically of a heart attack. Another. Uh, activist prisoner who has been in segregation for a long time, um, Bobby Landers, I believe was his name. And so they, um, the prisoners, started in Millhaven every year on August 10th, a day to remember all the prisoners who died in in prison, uh, in particular unnatural deaths. And it's I didn't realize it for a long time, but the the prisoners in Millhaven had actually raised money. And they buried Eddie Nalen and Bobby Landers in a cemetery here in Kingston. And um, so we've gone there quite often to, to honor them and also Prisoners Justice Day. And I thought it was cu- quite cool that the guys had raised the money to bury them. Because that's one of the problems. So so frequently prisoners are not, you know, they die. And like, I don't want to say it's the same sort of thing as what has happened in the residential schools. But I'll speak a little, just for a minute here, about, about what's gone on with women who died in the prison for women. Before 1970, it was pretty much routine procedure that if women died in the prison for women, and it was the only prison in Canada for federally sentenced women, So women were shipped from all over Canada and there's a disproportionate number of indigenous women in prison and indigenous men as well, like a significantly disproportionate number, some like 30% of the prison population at the time uh, in the women's prison were indigenous, whereas they're, they're anywhere between two and 4% historically of the general population. So um, that. That It goes without saying that a lot of these women were coming from remote areas of Canada. And some of them may have lost their families, may have lost track of them even before they went to prison. So it wasn't totally unheard of for women to die in the prison for women. It opened in 1935, by the way, for, for women to die. And nobody would claim them. Nobody No family members would know even that they died. Let's just say, uh, you know, they could have come from northern BC, a a reserve that may not even have been accessible by, by vehicle. So the families may not have known they died. So if a woman died up until the 70s, quite frequently, those women would be shipped over to the medical center at the university. And they would be used as cadavers for the students uh, who were learning to be doctors. And we don't know what they did with those bodies once they were, well, for one thing, it was, it's a crime that they were that their bodies were just used as cadavers without their families consenting. And secondly, we, we've tried to find out we haven't exhausted our investigation. So that's one thing. And then there's the other thing is just rumors that have that have been uh, perpetuated in, in many cases by guards who've worked at the prison for like 20 years, some of these guards who say that there were bones, like some of the women were buried on the ground. So there is a, a number of people in this area now who are calling for a radar ground search of the prison for women grounds because of the fact that, you know, the, well, the federal government would not pay to have these women shipped back, even if their families did know they died, that's one of the problems that 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 happened in the residential schools. That there was the, the government would not um, try to find the families or pay for the for the bodies to be sent back. So we have, um, you know, when you think about Prisoners' Justice Day, there's a significant number of women who, when they died, they were just. You know, nobody really gave a shit about what happened to them after that. So Prisoner's Justice Day is not just to remember the women who were not honoured or remembered when they died, but to remember, you know, prisoners in general. Yeah, I think I kind of went off on a tangent there, but...
1: <laughs> no, you know what, Anne, this is, uh this did what it's about, it during the toy, and we really appreciate that. Though um, so a lot of the solidarity movement, including those for Indigenous people, um, as you as you were referring to, um, because the a, a number of disproportionate to white people in so-called Canada, um, these movement, including yours, uh, rely on or Get help from allies. And, um, and, and that's a good thing, but it can come with problems. What were some of the problems that arose that can arise, generally speaking, when you involve allies, uh, particularly those who haven't experienced prison or have no idea? Have, Little idea what the criminal justice system is about. Can you tell us about some of those? Uh, not only good things, but also things that are problematic, mm-hmm. including allies.
2: Yeah, there's some. There's um, some really good. I don't have the name of it right now, off the top of my head. But there are some really good pamph. There's a very good pamphlet online. It's unfortunate I don't have it. Maybe. I will find the name of it later on in this interview, but it's produced by indigenous people about allies. Um, But in any way, I'll just start off by saying like, there's generally, it's generally recognized that there's two, like, again, this is really general, but there's kind of like two types of people that get involved in prisoner support group. And one of them you could say would be sort of liberal charitable people. And the other would be allies and the, you know, the group of people who could be classified as sort of working under a charitable or liberal umbrella are people who sort of who feel sorry for prisoners and, and, and have pity upon them and want to help them. So the problem with that kind of, of person who's helping is that they don't recognize that many of the reasons that prison, people are in prison is for systemic reasons like colonialism, racism, sexism. You know, uh, poverty, in you know, capitalism are, are, the, are the factors that play the main role in criminalizing people. It's not that people, nobody's born a criminal. So there's these factors that come into play in so many people's lives. It's just a matter of, you know, perhaps the social class you're born into. And the people who are trying to help prisoners, but that are coming from this sort of pro-capitalist democratic Uh, system and support that system are feeling sorry and wanting to help people but they don't so but they don't actually change the conditions or even attempt to change the conditions that force people into a criminal lifestyle and they also um, sort of belittle the people as well because prisoners are by and large not stupid people or weak people or people who have no idea why they're there. In fact, that's the thing that I think would shock most people if they went to jail, would be just how strong and intelligent prisoners are and how angry people can get when they're prisoners and have fine people coming in who feel sorry for them, think they're sort kind of think they're stupid, you know. So there's that person, that, again, generalizations, there's still good people even within that category. And then there's generally the other group of people Now the ideal ally is someone who sees themselves as working side by side with prisoners, like that they're equals, except that the prisoner has been in some ways a victim of the systemic features of our society that lead to criminalization. Um, They don't pity the prisoners. They're they're not out there uh, trying to fix things for the prisoners they are trying to change the system, they're trying to change conditions that that are oppressive within the prison, and also the conditions within our society that create uh, the, the the conditions that lead to crime, you know, extreme poverty, again, I'm not going to keep repeating them, but colonialism, racism, like, it's a statistic that is consistent for decades, that Within the women's prison population, eighty percent of women have have been either physically and/or sexually abused. So that is not a coincidence. It just that statistic is consistent throughout time. So obviously, sexual abuse plays a role in criminalization. So we had some experiences with um, with I'll just say students and academics in general, and you know we had um, as people would in any. Uh, city or town uh, there's always you know students who are eager to work with either prisoners or indigenous people or drug addicts or homeless people and um, they were very many for for many years they were very helpful and we worked, we believed we were friends not just allies we didn't even really use any kind of words like that we used their first names we we they spent the night with us. You know, we had social events and things like that. But then in the last year, we had this traumatizing event where a group of women who were in our collective that were all academics um, started a second group. They'd been with us for two years. So they learned about. They met other prisoners. They knew us, and there was like five of us who have lived experience, which is pretty high ratio, really. Because really, it's not. I've in my past, and I've worked with, in prison abolition groups for many, many years. It's not that often you you have people who've been in prison who are working in those groups. So for there to be just five of us in this, in this group was was pretty significant. And um, so they started a second group, and we didn't know about it. Like they did not invite us, they purpose, they had separate meetings, but they could not, but what their, um, what their goal was, was to um, take the art, like they, they went out of their way to access uh, other women who'd been in prison by knowing us and hearing us mention their names and access their artwork and surreptitiously started, like applied for grants and loans to go on a tour of with this art and they 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 apparently got something like $8,000 in loans in in grants from um, you know the university and other places or the you know place of education we will say cuz there's num- there's a number of places uh, where they have like colleges and uni- and universities in this area and um, we just found out cuz uh, it was inevitable. I don't know how they could have thought. I guess they thought we were stupid. Uh, but, you know, when you work with all the different radicals and activists in your community, we started hearing about this second group. And we started asking about it. And they simply wouldn't tell us. So we eventually had two couple of Zoom meetings and interrogated them. And they finally uh, said, well, yes, we started this other group. And we were so upset about it because... You know, they had been using us, you know, like they could even cause conflict by um, enrolling one of our fellow uh, ex-prisoners to be involved and paid them so that when we found out it caused a bit of conflict between us and this other person who was from a totally different city and everything. And why would they exclude us? We never did get an answer to that. The only thing we can think of was they limited their membership to only this stu- only the students there was not one person involved who's had lived experience except towards the end where they recruited this person and paid them to be involved you know uh so we actually had a meeting and we kicked all the uh, academics out of our group which in a way it was traumatic because like I said we didn't think of them as allies we didn't use that word oh they're allies they were our friends And to think that they would purposefully and conscientiously exclude us in order to get the more money to, you know, because these loans were probably coming out of university or colleges where they want to pay students. And, um, you know, for a while, it was a big setback because we're all older people, um, us women who've who've been out of prison for a while and are not that good. at using social media and stuff. So we had a lot of trouble Um, on our you know keeping our website updated and but in the long run it may end up having being the best thing that ever happened to us because you know now we are having to do everything ourselves and we've learned a lot and we you know contrary to what many people thought we're still in business and I say that with a smile you know as a joke the word business Um, yeah so I hope I might have lost track here So, you know, I I think there's a real danger. Okay, I'll just say one other thing that I've noticed, because I'm getting old. And I've been around in the prison abolition movement since I was in my uh, early 20s. So let's say that's about 40 years, you can do the math. And um, in the, you know, back in the uh, 90s and the 80s, Most of the activists that I knew were not students. Like they were sort of more like um, people who were unemployed, anarchists, you know, punk rockers, feminists. But in my early years, it wasn't something that so many students were attracted to. And I, I think as well that the universities didn't have specialized courses related to prison like I know now there's many universities that have what they call prison critical studies classes um, and I think things like departments like criminology and sociology you know there's a lot of there's a lot of students now that are studying um, prison you know in general like I don't know whether it's the psychological uh, angle or just um just generally um the study of prisons and uh, correctional services and and criminal justice system in general. So I think a lot of uh, people who are very well-meaning are becoming activists. Like I know across the country, there are groups uh, that are like one big group that, Okay, I'm going to name this one group, which I actually think highly of so this is not I'm not naming this group because they are not the group that I'm talking about here, by the way. Um, but like the prison uh, abolition coalition is a very good, good group um, that goes across Canada, and they do they work online, but they also do activism in communities across Canada, but it's pretty predominant is pretty dominated by academics. And to my knowledge, they do really good work. But I think there's a lot of, um, you really have to be uh, on the ball if you're an academic and and really be conscious of your motives. Because I think if you're um, a student or even a professor that it's very easy if you're doing work with the Prison Abolition Collective to start thinking in terms of what can benefit you in your career, what kind of projects Will enhance your credit, your credit credibility, your um, you know, just basically your resume. Um, whether you're studying for an MA or PhD, whether it will align with your thesis and that kind of thing. Whereas in my day, when people weren't, where, when these, when these activist groups were not dominated by people who are in academia, I mean, it was pretty clear you joined a prisoner abolition group for justice, you know, to help the prisoners to bring the the prison system down to fight capitalism. Those were your motives. And it certainly had nothing to do with money. Like we never I don't remember ever being in a group where you got a lot of loans and grants from anybody, you know, you had to raise money through concerts and films and different kinds of fundraising techniques, but not by applying to any big institutions. So I think, this is something that academics really have to be careful of is that they're not choosing if they're in a group to do projects that are interesting and creative, which would be perhaps the most fun things to do, but the things that are essential, like, for example, in our group right now, we really need to do a lot of research into who, like the who did die in the prison for women. Like we have to start doing research using um, newspapers um, uh, going into um, archives, um, all kinds of different techniques, the Freedom of Information Act find out the names of the women who died, how they died, where they died. you know this is for our particular project in the Memorial Garden. We want a gallery in the in the prison for women. We want to be able to exhibit their art, their writing, make some films, testify films where we we interview women who been in prison, sometimes for years in segregation, for example. Um, a lot of this work is boring, like doing a lot of research to get the names of the women who died. I mean, you're spending a lot of time going over digital files from the newspapers, looking at the coroner's reports and filing free. It's just not glamorous, fun work that's going to help you get your PhD or your MA or graduate, Whatever. But that's often the kind of thing, if you're an activist, you have to do. You, you, it's not all, you know, running around, having fun, you know, fighting with the cops. Now that I'm saying sarcastically, of course, that's not fun. But, you know, it's not always exciting and, um, and creative. But I think, you know, it's, if there's a real danger in this day and age where so many people are studying prisoners in prisons and they do get interested in helping activists. It's, it's they've really got to be self-aware of what their motives are, and are they actually allies, or are they blinded by ambition, their own? Uh, and I and and you know, there would be a certain segment there who would fit into that liber- liberal charitable status too, like which is really. You know, it would take a person having a total paradigm shift to get out of that category. You know what I mean? Those are usually people who believe in capitalism and democracy, the people who are doing it for charitable reasons. I know, again, I've probably wandered all
1: over the place here, but... Oh, no, did it, it, it is wonderful. In fact, you did that into my not quite, uh, with with the great... And my next question for you is you mentioned, um, you know, the, the organic analytics and the, the low-income and the street uh, allied people that um you meant that you connected with when you were younger have been replaced by academia and the corporate uh non-profit industry. And so if you were to talk to an individual day, then I would really like to be uh in solidarity with you guys or be an ally for lack of better word. Um and and they asked you how can we do that? What would you say to those people uh now that you've mentioned all the pitfall, pitfalls of, of coming in solidarity within the prison movement for ulterior motives, like career but uh, like newspaper report, you know, all that stuff. What would you recommend to the individual that that wanted being taught authority with abolition movement.
2: Well, I think uh, as a group, first of all, I know we're talking about individuals here, but I think it's very important. We did not have any kind of policies or protocols. You know, we were we started off. There was just mainly us. There was a group of people, women who've been in prison, and a couple of other people who actually used to visit prisoners here in in where I live, um, but. Um, so we didn't have any policies or protocols, but now what we've decided is we, from now on, those words that you hear quite often, transparency and accountability. We think that those are very important, um, that if people are working on projects, that they should always be open to being transparent about what they're doing, because that's one thing that didn't happen in our group. There was this sort of sneaky side side organizing going on to be transparent and accountable, like accountable to the people with lived experience. And sometimes it's difficult. Like for example, we had a person in the allies group who were starting another group, surreptitiously say that they really liked each other and that was why they were working together. So of course the implication is, oh, you didn't like us, is that what you're saying? I actually said that myself in the meeting. And, you know, one thing I can say is I really like the other women that I'm I'm working with who've been in prison. But I think anybody who's been in prison will tell you that if you have to make general statements about women or probably men in prison, the kind of, let's, I know a lot of this is difficult because it's so general, but the average personality of people in prison is not a quiet, diplomatic, soft-spoken person. Like, you know, a lot of people who've been in, who are or have been in prison have been through a lot of trauma in their lives and have lived, have had to live on the street, foster homes, juvenile detention centers, training schools, indigenous people. We in our generation, most of the women have been to residential schools. So there's a lot of baggage there and a lot of the women you know were not would would raise their voice like if they were mad they wouldn't hold it in they'd be they'd be yelling (laughs) they'd say say they were mad you know and you just and and there and also a lot of people who've been and I think this would hold true I'm making again a, a generalization this could this is probably holds true too if you're working with people who have addiction issues or homelessness it's again not true of everybody you cannot expect people to act like people from white privileged backgrounds who haven't had a lot of trauma, who've had a lot of education and, you know, are very socialized to act in a certain diplomatic way, you know. And that can be a problem when you're dealing with people who are from very privileged backgrounds and are, and are refined in terms of their diplomacy and soft spoken manner, blah, blah, blah. But I wouldn't say that those qualities make them necessarily more honest, or deep or smart. So I think that when you're working with people who are underprivileged, and I am I am from a privileged background, I am not your stereotypical prisoner. But you have to realize that um, people are going to be very different than than yourself. And you have to be open to that and realize why maybe people, if they're angry, may not hold it in as much, you know. Um, and also because most, the the educational level is much lower uh, for prisoners than it is for the general population. And so a lot of people are literate, or even if they're literate, maybe not as literate as, let's say, in particular people from academia. But that has nothing to do with intelligence. I can tell you firsthand that if you ever go to prison and you can quickly and if you can get over the, fa- uh, the fact that just because someone's talks street, you know, uh, does not mean they're stupid. You will realize very quickly how bright people are in prison and how they're just as perceptive and deep thinking, even if their vocabulary doesn't include 10 letter words, you know. And that is a problem that I found a lot of people who don't come from um, underprivileged backgrounds or non-white backgrounds have, is that they just have this, you know, superior attitude because they are educated and they assume that if someone doesn't speak from a middle-class academic, you know, way of speaking, that they are, that that is the equal with stupidity. And I'll tell you, if you ever go to prison, people have often said, what? Advice would you have for me? And I would say, shut up, learn, and listen. Because the the thing that people who are in prison hate the most is a prisoner who comes in there, and they they can smell this like this attitude of I'm coming in here, and I'm going to teach you people. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna organize in here. We're going to have maybe have reading groups, but we're going to have end up having lockdowns. I've heard many radicals say that if they went to prison, they would be in there organizing. But if you go into a prison setting and assume that you will be able to just walk in there and start talking to people and organize them, you'll have another thing coming because prison, I'm this whole talk today is going to be full of generalizations, but prisoners as a group have been inundated with social workers, cops, prison guards, counselors. And the, the thing they are so sensitive to is people who are patronizing, who think they know more than them, are always telling them what to do, and they don't like it because they are smart. And the, the people who are being patronizing know nothing about what they have experienced because I have to admit, I wouldn't go to training school or a residential school or in a foster family. I wasn't sexually abused. And I couldn't tell you what that would be like, even though I, most of the people I know have been through that. It's a totally different world, you know, and being in prison for years is in totally different world. So any activists who go to prison, I think it would be a huge mistake to go in there and just assume that you could organize the prison population to become more aware and and resist and all this. And the best thing to do for your own health and sanity is to just go in there and be quiet, observe and listen. And you will be invited in when you're ready. People will start to approach you and talk. And then as equals, you know, if, if people are ready to resist, because the consequences are extreme in prison compared to out here, you know. Just the slightest little charge and you've lost contact with your family, trailer visits with your kids, all that stuff is gone. So you learn really quickly that resistance can be something incredibly tiny, like, you know, saying telling a guard to fuck off can be the end of a trailer visit with your kids. But I'm getting, again, carried away here on this one question. So I don't even know if I answered what you (laughs) what you asked me.
1: And uh, you, you've more than answered. Uh, you've taught me and our perspective listeners so much uh, with the entities and these generalizations and these examples. Mm-hmm. These are so invaluable for, the, for those of us who want to stand in authentic solidarity with you guys. Mm-hmm. And that leads me to my next question. So... Um, you mentioned that you were you were born into privilege and uh, somebody like myself was also born into privilege and so um, how can but there is perception that in, in mainstream colonized white supremacist society that the pr- prisoners inmates are are the lowest the below and you know they're not human and yet they should be given basic rights, but that's about it. And you know, there shouldn't be any we rehabilitation rehabilitated that because that would cost too much money. So though so all mainstream society where I'm from has all the perceptions of Incarceration. So, how do we uh, become proactive in in changing those perspectives and getting into a position where we can say, no, I don't agree with those perceptions of, of the criminal, of people who are uh, incarcerated by the state? I want to do better, I want to break these stereotypes. I want to do better in my life, dec- uh, decolonize, and have a better, more authentic d- d- understanding of the world, bro- the globalism. So how can we gain those perceptions on the outside?
2: Well, I think, um, I, well, it's always good to make a lot of effort to get people who've been in prison involved in, in in groups in any kind of you know prison abolition groups but what is the best thing to do is a big question you know like we are focusing right now here on this memorial gardening gallery but that's just what that's just you know because we're here in Kingston in the prison for women's there uh the group of us with lived experience were in there but um For example, there is a lot of like in the abolition coalition, they are doing a lot of work to try to prevent here in Ontario, they want to expand, there's a remand center called Quinty, which I've been in, it is the worst prison I've ever been in. And remand prisons are horrific, all across the country. So they're going to uh, expand it quite a bit, it's going to be huge. And up in they're, they're just they're they're expanding the prison system again here in Ontario. So I think that a lot of prison abolitionists, you know, can focus on that. There's so many, there's in, you know, endless targets for our resistance, I think. But you know, any anywhere where they're building more prisons, I think that anybody can organize to try to prevent that from be, from being the case. In my experience, pr- building more prisons has never improved the conditions, in fact. Um, so even though the existing prison, like, for example, Quinty, is the worst prison I've ever been in, I don't hold any hope that building this n- brand new multi-million dollar remand centre is going to be an improvement. The the, the best example example that i can give of failed of how reforms don't work is um the prison for women closing it was it's just classic the louise arbour commission looked into it they closed it down they were also um louise arbour was working with the canadian association elizabeth fry societies and the, and the native um the native women's association of canada and which are you know fairly progressive um, And so the the whole goal was to build new prisons for women that were more women-centred and Indigenous-centred and regionally located so families could visit them. And anyone who's been, at least everyone I know, who's been in any of these new federal prisons say that they are worse than the prison for women. Um, They have fewer jobs. Well, some of it is the increased use of technology and the um, basically more advanced technology like when we were in the prison for women they didn't have any audio visual surveillance cameras and stuff like that so we weren't under 24 hours surveillance like they are now the guards had to come in and walk the range every hour to do count you could hear the, the gate opening and closing like so you had lots of time to sort of clean up whatever you were doing right but it's just like nowadays they have done, they, 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 they use a lot of psychological ways of resisting prisoners. Like, for example, they move people around all the time. I was in the maximum security unit at Grand Valley. And every, every women's prison has a maximum security unit, which is really another word for a special handling unit. It's a small prison within the compound. They usually only hold at the most 30 women in five separate or three separate pods, you know, and there's only five women per pod. And then there's segregation. If you're and in the pods are completely closed, like you have no interaction with any other women, but the five women in your pod, you only get out of that pod for an hour a day to exercise. There's no work, so you're hanging around, and then you're in your cell a lot. So, you know that is not an improvement over the prison for women where they had multiple sec- multiple security levels all together. And they, like I said, they have a policy of moving people around. So if you're in a They have these, what look like little bungalows in these new prisons, but people call them units because that's what they are. They're units. Um, Often women will be friends within one of these units. And if they decide they're going to, um, I don't know, let's say through people on the outside launch a little bit of a media campaign about something that's going on in prison, they will be, one of them will be moved to a separate unit where they can't associate very well. So I'm just saying there's an odd dilemma here because I, I do believe that, you know, new prisons are never a good idea. We should resist them. But on the other hand, I'm not totally opposed to trying to improve conditions either. It's sort of a fine line, like, you know, the harm reduction philosophy, right? That you hear about a lot nowadays where you're guided in your reformism by a revolutionary, you know, you want, a revolutionary analysis and perspective, but you're going for, let's say, trying to eliminate segregation, right? And I believe that you have to try to improve conditions now, but you have to have a revolutionary perspective when you do it. But at the same time, I'm very conflicted because there's very few examples that I could point to of reforms that have actually improved conditions for prisoners, you know? But I mean, it does also seem... Cruel to like, I always use this example. If you were visiting someone who'd been in segregation for several years, which is the case in every prison you'll go to, there's people in, in segregation for years and you tell them that they are to just hang in there because you're a revolutionary. So you're not going to waste your time trying to eliminate segregation. You're going for getting rid of capitalism and hang in there, buddy. I mean, that person is going to be feel like killing you. You know, because it, we, you and I cannot imagine what it'd be like to be in, locked in a bathroom for two years, you know, and neither could they. So I, and it's the same with people starving in other parts of the world for us to sort of say, well, wait for the revolution, friends, you know, like, how realistic is it there's going to be a revolution in, even in, in, in our lifetimes, Right. Um, so I don't know if I'm really answering your question here again. I do, I have tended to wander off a little bit again.
1: No, no, and uh, yeah, I you <laughs> I uh, you've you've really uh, you've really given us the gift. you give it the insight And I, um, as we begin to wind down this interview, how can good Authentic allies, if you want to be in solidarity with your project, your memorial project, how can people get involved? Do you have a website? Do you have uh, a video channel? Um, Yeah, do you have a package you can mail people? Is there a way for people to become involved? In your movement?
2: Well, we did have a very active website, but right now we're in a transition mode of getting somebody from our group because none of us who have been in prison are very good at social media, like I said before. But we do have a really great activist, prison abolition activist here, who is going to be um, getting the website up. Like we have a website, it just hasn't been updated. So, yes, our website would be a good source of what's going on for sure that would be the, the best thing and just uh hang in there if it is if it's a little added it would only be like maybe six months out a date right now so yeah and we will keep we'll, we're gonna update it very very shortly
1: there you go folks um, it, it can't be any more clear. um start up in lit and, and uh, do you best to uh educate yourself before you start to think about being in solidarity and helping those who are locked up. And I want to remind people that they can pick up and two books, direct action, urban of a, um, memories of an urban grower and, uh, a, a newer book, um, sorry, what's it called, Anne?
2: Uh, taking the rap, women doing crime for society's women doing time for society's yes,
1: crime. Yes, yes I, I remember it now. You can put both up at German uh, info shop in Bookstore um, book on quadrat Street in so-called Victoria on the unceded an overlapping overlapping West a territory. So without uh, any further ado, I'd like to thank you again, Anne, for your time and for uh, giving that uh, peace into your lived experiences. And uh, let's do this again. And on behalf of the uh, Victoria Analysis Book First Collective, uh, we're with you and uh, we wish you all the best in your in your future projects with uh, helping, those, helping us remember those who have died in prison. And um, thank you so for that. So, the end. Food
2: Not Bombs is serving free meals to everyone. Sundays, 4 p.m. at Centennial Square on unceded Lekwungen territory. Come eat with us. Drop off food or support our kitchen. We are looking for volunteers to help chopping, cooking, and serving food, or to help with computer tasks. Check Food Not Bombs Victoria on Facebook to find out where we cook. For inquiries about volunteering and to join our Listserv, please mail to vicfnb at lists.resist.ca or check out our Facebook page, Food Not Bombs Victoria. Food Not Bombs. Free meals every Sunday at 4 p.m. at Centennial Square on unceded Lekwungen Territory. Free the food!